go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 6, and we're going to read Matthew 6, 1 through 18. We're we're looking at verses 16 through 18 this morning, but it's it's kind of been a, we've taken a couple, uh, a little bit longer in the last couple weeks, so I want to refresh your mind. So we're going to read Matthew 6, 1 through 18, and we know that when the scripture speaks, God speaks, so we stand in honor of God's word as it is read. Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head with, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, like I said, we've been taking the last couple weeks, been, uh, and we took a couple weeks longer than we thought to go through the Lord's Prayer. That was for a couple reasons. Uh, one was... Uh, the Lord's Prayer at first t- it took a bit longer, so we spent a week on the first three petitions, and then we spent a week on the second three. But then, uh, even more than that, because forgiveness was such a central issue to Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, we took an aside last week just to talk about the biblical nature of forgiveness. But now we return, we return to this section in Matthew, we return to the, to, to the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom righteousness. Jesus is teaching his disciples, if Jesus is king, how do you live under the king as you ought, as he would desire you to live? And so through chapter 5, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about even the law and the Old Testament law. And how do you look at the law and obey from the heart? Not just looking at the external command, but pursuing God's law from the heart. But then at the beginning of chapter 6, you remember he's made this transition to talking about righteous habits, righteous habits. The things that you do on a day-to-day basis as a disciple 
in living under Jesus? What do those righteous habits look like? So I'll just remind you uh, of 6.1. He, he, Jesus states the main principle that he applies in the rest of this section through verse 18. Verse 1, beware, take care of practicing your righteousness, that's your righteous habits, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the basic principle that Jesus applies to the rest of this section. You're going to have reward either from men or from God. You can pursue one or the other, but you can't have both. And so he's warning, he's, that, that language is taking care, beware about practicing your righteousness before other people in order to pursue a reward from them, because then you're not going to have anything from your Father in heaven. And then he applies that principle, he applied it first to charitable giving, giving to the needy, and he said that uh, don't, don't be like the play actors. Remember, that's the idea of hypocrites. Hypocrite is a play actor. It's a Greek uh, play kind of term, right? There are play actors. They're presenting themselves as pious. They're presenting themselves as righteous in their giving. But if that's what they're pursuing, they're going to get paid in full. And so we talked about in verses 2 through 4, give, but give looking for the Father's reward, not other people's reward. And then in 5 and 6, we he applied that same principle to prayer. Uh, the play actors, they go out to the street corners and they want to be seen by others. They're really uh, praying so that others would hear them, not that God would hear them. And if you do so, you're going to get all that you're ever going to get. But if you pray, you're content to be in secret with the Father because only the Father sees and only the Father will reward you. You're pursuing the Father's reward. The reward as a son, and as a, that's what a disciple is. A disciple who's turned allegiance from sin and self, they repented from sin and self, and they've turned and entrusted themselves to Christ. They're followers of him. They're disciples. They are adopted sons and daughters, and so they pursue reward as a son or a child would, looking to their parents. There's an intimacy there. But then what Jesus did, because prayer is so central, he took an aside, he kind of broke his pattern, so to speak, and in 7 through 15, he talked about, okay, uh, since prayer is so central, really the answer, uh, how are you going to live the Sermon on the Mount? You're going to live the Sermon on the Mount by praying, by calling on God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, really to live this life. And so he talked about the pattern of prayer. What does the pattern of prayer look like? But then we get this last section, pick, uh, Jesus picks up his pattern again in verse 16. So what he, did with, what he did with giving, what he did with praying, now he does with fasting. Now he does with fasting. Now fasting, we're familiar, we're familiar with giving, we're familiar with praying, we're not as familiar with fasting, I would say. Uh, just on the surface, as, a, as you think about maybe the mainstream church in America, uh, yes, people do fast, we do fast, but uh, uh, we're not as familiar with it. Uh, we don't practice it as often. And yet here, Jesus launches into a discussion of fasting and how to fast as a disciple. And so this is, is going to be a, a good time this morning, not only to address verses 16 through 18 and what Jesus is specifically addressing here, but we need to understand the idea of fasting. Maybe you don't have a great conception of, uh, you know, what, why do we fast? When do we fast? Is that just something that was for then? It's not for now. There's a lot of confusion about fasting 
and how to do it. And so uh, what I want to do this morning as we walk into this, I want to walk through verses 16 through 18. But before we do that, we need to give a background to fasting in the scriptures and understand what it's all about. And so my hope is that as we walk through this, you'll not only hear what Jesus is doing and teaching his disciples how to fast, but I also want to give you some backdrop of why you would do that in, in any case. So here's the main idea for this morning that you want to take away that Jesus has for us and that we want to take away. It's this, take care to fast, looking for reward from the Father and not from people. Take care, beware, uh, look to fasting, looking for the Father's reward and not from people. That's the main idea of the section we're looking at, that you're, not, you're supposed to fast, but not for other people, but for the Father's reward, for the Father's reward. It's the same principle of 6.1 applied to fasting. But first, let's, let's understand, let's understand the biblical significance of fasting. This is actually where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, to understand what Jesus is getting at in 16 through 18. So what we need to take away first is to understand the biblical significance of fasting. First thing you need to realize about fasting in the scriptures is it's always the abstaining from food and sometimes water for a period of time. So sometimes you hear people talk about today, well, I'm fasting, um, I'm fasting uh, Facebook or I'm fasting uh, doing some other activity. I'm fasting television, right? Something like that. Well, technically speaking, that's not a fast. It's not a bad thing to do. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing to do, and you could even do it for good reasons, uh, even similar reasons to fasting. But technically speaking, fasting is always dealing with food. It's always dealing with food and water, and I believe that's significant. And you'll see why I believe that it's significant that it's food here in a minute. So fasting is always the abstaining from food and sometimes water, for a period of time. It's intentional, though. It's an intentional idea. But when we start talking about fasting, uh, since it's always dealing with food, now we're automatically talking about food in Scripture. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but food is a very significant theme in Scripture. Very significant. And in fact, just to show you this and uh, where we launch from, it's, uh, let's go ahead and turn to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, and I want you to start to see uh, the significance of food. In fact, if you start to think about Genesis 1 through 3, it's kind of funny. When you start thinking about a biblical concept of Scripture, usually you find your way back to Genesis 1 through 3 because everything kind of explodes out from there. So if you want to trace a theme through Scripture, chances are you're going to start back somewhere in Genesis 1 through 3, and then you're going to end up tracing it through Scripture. Well, for sure enough, if we're talking about fasting, we're talking about food, so we've got to talk about food. So let's talk about food in Genesis 1. And right after God creates man and woman and says, you're my image bearers, you're, you're my steward rulers, my kings and priests over creation, he says this in Genesis 1.29. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And the idea is that that's, that's a gift of abundance right there, right? That God is providing for his image bearers, his commissioned image bearers. He's providing for their needs and he's doing so abundantly. Skip over to chapter two, verse eight. And God continues, he's speaking to Adam here. And it says, Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go down to verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what you should take away from this, what's interesting as God has created man, he's commissioned him as his image bearer to glorify God, and he puts him in a beautiful garden. There's abundance. There's abundance of food. Every tree is there for you to eat from. Really, it's in that sense, it's a feast. But even in that context, there's a restriction on food, isn't there? There's a restriction on food. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's interesting is that food is initially provided to man in abundance in the garden, and yet even in this abundance, God prohibited consumption of food of one tree as a test or a sign of obedience and dependence on God and his word. That's what's going on there. That's why he, I'm not saying the restriction there is fasting. That's not what's going on, because fasting is a completely abstaining from food. But what we see here is that food is given in abundance, and yet even so, God restricts certain food why? To show dependence on him, him as the ultimate life giver. And it's at this restriction on food that man and woman fail. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we go there. What does the serpent do? He twists God's uh, statement. He, he, instead of presenting God as abundantly giving and generous, the serpent presents God as stingy. Well, he gave you all this, but he didn't give you this. He didn't give you this. And then what happens? The woman sees that the tree is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It's, 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 it's desired to make one wise. So at the very instance of food, does man fall? Not only Eve partakes, but also Adam. And even the curse, even the curse, the subsequent curse, it deals with food. Genesis uh, 3.17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you return. So food is significant in the early chapters of Genesis. Not in and of itself, but what it points to with God. We see God's generosity, his goodness, in providing the sustenance that man needs to live on a day-by-day -day basis. Even in the curse, even though that food is now harder to get, it's still ultimately from God that man is able to work and to obtain food, the food that he needs to physically live. Basically, what we see in Genesis 1 through 3 is this. Food is necessary for man's existence. It's ultimately uh, provided by God and in abundance when living in his presence. You remember in the garden, man is close to God's presence. So in a very real sense, he's got this abundance because he's close to God in his presence. But as important as food is, it's less important for existence than listening to God's word less important for existence than listening to God's word. God is the ultimate source of life. His commands are the ultimate source of life. And that's, that's really what happened in the fall, right, is a lack of dependence, a lack of trust in God. Man took things onto his own hands, tried to be self-reliant. 
Really, if you wanted to boil down kind of the, the concise nature of what we're talking about here, you actually see it. And, and remember, all of this forms the backdrop for fasting. We're getting there. But really, all of what we just said about food, you could see in Deuteronomy 8.3, in a concise statement. There, Deuteronomy 8.3 Uh, Moses is recounting Israel's wandering through the wilderness. And God says this about Israel. And he humbled you, Deuteronomy 8.3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. So that's, that's the theology that's there in Genesis, but it's just a nice, concise way of framing it. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man, God provides bread for man to live, but man doesn't live by bread alone. In fact, the more important thing is everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if you think about it, you're like, hey, that sounds familiar. I've heard that recently. Well, you should remember remembering Matthew 4, 2, where Jesus goes into a 40-day fast, and then he's hungry. And where does the devil tempt him first? He tempts him in the exact same place where Israel is tempted in the wilderness, in the exact same place that Adam and Eve were tempted. He tempts him with food, physical desire, physical sustenance. And then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that forms the backdrop for fasting. You really can see it in Matthew 4 too. So if I was to give you a a definition for fasting and to understand what it is, I would say this. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food. We've seen that food is significant. So we're sticking with food. It's not just abstaining from anything, but it's abstaining from food the intake of which is regularly necessary to sustain human life. You need to eat, otherwise you're going to die. In order, why do you do this? This intentional abstaining from food, why are you doing that? In order to humble oneself and demonstrate one's dependence on God and his word as the ultimate foundation for one's life in all its dimensions. That's what's going on with fasting. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food, the intake of which is regularly necessary to sustain human life in order to humble oneself and demonstrate one's dependence on God and his word as the ultimate foundation for one's life in all its dimensions. You're acknowledging in fasting that, yes, I need food to function, God, but more than I need food to function, I need every word that proceeds out of your mouth. I need, I'm dependent on you for my existence. Uh, You give me the food, yes, but even more than food, I need you. I need your sustaining grace. I need your word. And what we've already seen, even in Genesis, is the Think about this, right? As you think about the scriptures and the storyline of scriptures, the opposite of fasting is feasting. The opposite of fasting is feasting, which is good, and it's ultimately appropriate when feasting is ultimately appropriate when humans are reconciled to God and enjoying his presence as in Eden and the New Jerusalem. We've got feasting in Eden. There's feasting in the New Jerusalem, the wedding feast, 
Food is very significant to the storyline of scriptures. Why do we fast? We fast in a fallen world when we recognize and humble ourselves that we are dependent on God and his word more even than our food. That's the basic definition of fasting, this idea of humbling ourselves, uh, uh, humbling ourselves before God and, and essentially saying by that act, Lord, I need more than my food. I need you and I need your word. I need I'm, I'm in life in all its dimensions, not just my physical life, but my spiritual life. I am dependent on you. As you walk through the Old Testament, you see, a, uh, based on that definition of fasting, you see several key areas when fasting happens, when fasting happens. So uh, when do people fast? You could think about it like that. When do people fast in the Old Testament? Well, one, they fast when there's death and sorrow. They fast when there's death and sorrow. Uh, at the end of 1 Samuel and at the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, Saul and Jonathan die, and uh, some men go, and uh, the Philistines have got their bodies, right, and they put them uh, in the city, and some men go, some Israelites go, and they go rescue the bodies, and then they go bury them, and then they fast. But it's a time of mourning. Even at the beginning of 2 Samuel, still in regard to Saul and Jonathan's death, David and those who are with him mourn, over Saul and Jonathan, right? This connection with death and sorrow, what is happening? Uh, what do you, it's appropriate when there's death and sorrow to fast. Why? Well, think about it. Here, in, with, with death, uh, one is confronted with the disruption and the cessation of life leading one to recognize one's dependence on God for all of life. If fasting is humbling yourself and acknowledging that I am dependent on you, God, more than even my food for life, then death and the sorrow that accompanies it is an appropriate time to fast, to, to acknowledge that someone close to me or someone very important just died, and you took them. It was their time, and I'm just as dependent on you for my timing and my way. I'm dependent on you for all of my life. Therefore, death and sorrow is an appropriate time to fast. But related to this, right, the, uh, related to this kind of flowing out of it, another appropriate time to fast that we see in the scriptures is in times of repentance, uh, of mourning over sin, right? We have this idea of death and sorrow, national, it's not just deaths of individuals, national catastrophes, they bring sorrow, this idea of mourning, but that mourning, uh, it, you can think of in the spiritual dimension as well, mourning over sin, mourning over sin, and what sin is against God. Therefore, what you see in scriptures is when God's people are, are seeking to repent, they're seeking to mourn over their sin, to confess their sin, they fast. They fast. Uh, the only time we see a mandated fast uh, in the Old Testament, something that says, God says, you must do this, is in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus. Turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. Now, Leviticus is all about how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? And the pinnacle of that is the Day of Atonement. The one time during the year when God's going to cover Israel's sins so that they can dwell with a holy God. That's the Day of Atonement. It's kind of the catch-all for all of the nation's sins for that year. But in that context, you have the only 
uh, mandated fast in the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 29 in Leviticus 16. It says this, And it shall be a statute uh, to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that's when you do the Day of Atonement, you shall afflict yourselves. And that, that language for afflict yourselves, that's what we think is the language for fasting. It could be a broader idea than just fasting, but we think it certainly includes that. And uh, we, you can look at other Jewish documents, extra biblical documents, where it includes fasting. It might go beyond that. But it's, uh, that idea of afflicting yourselves, it would include fasting. And shall do no work, either the native or the stranger or who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of Solomon rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. There's our word again. It is a statute forever. Really, in fasting, you're afflicting yourself. You're depriving your body of nourishment. But here, what we see is it's in the context of when God is going to forgive sins. Humility is expressed before God because of sin and dependence on him for restoration of spiritual life, which in the Old Testament system was mainly happening at the Day of Atonement. You can see this on an individual basis as well. Turn over to Daniel. Turn over to Daniel. Daniel 9. Daniel is in exile in Babylon. In fact, he's a high official in Babylon. But what's significant in Daniel 9 is that... Um, he, Daniel reads, uh, Daniel reads his Bible. Uh, this is interesting. Let me go ahead and start in, in verse 1 in Daniel 9. Listen to this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And the, the Babylonians had come, they had wiped out Jerusalem, they had destroyed the temple. That's why ba Daniel's in Babylon. And then notice his response, verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh my God when made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. And it goes on. But you see, what, why is Daniel's fasting? He's praying, but he's mourning. He's mourning not only over his sin, but he's mourning as a representative of the nation's sin. It's appropriate for him to fast, to express humility, and dependence before God. Even more than my food, I am dependent on God for, for my life, for his word. And what do we need here? We need the word of forgiveness, God's word of forgiveness to us. And so it's appropriate to fast. 
So we see people fast in death and sorrow. Part of that mourning flows into mourning over sin. So people fast in connection with repentance and forgiveness. And even what we just saw in Daniel, we could say, this is a big category, people fast when they pray. People fast when they pray. Uh, fasting and praying are, are strongly connected in Scripture. Of course, you can pray without fasting, but you oftentimes see people, uh, when they are fasting, it's almost always accompanied by prayer. Prayer petitioning God for a variety of requests. You remember David, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had an illegitimate child, and uh, he gets confronted by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, and then uh, God says, I'm going to put away your sin, but there's still consequences. We actually talked about this last week. Your child is going to die. But David, what David does, he responds with fasting and prayer for the child. He knows God is merciful. He knows that God could relent if he so desired. And so what does David do? He prays and humbles himself. He says, God, more than my food, uh, and he's doing it on behalf of another person, right? He's doing this on behalf of another person, pleading for them. And he's saying, I am dependent on you more than my food for my life, but not only my life, for the life of this child, for the life of this child. And so he humbles himself. Could look like other things as well. Uh, turn over to Ezra. So you, you could fast while praying, and the request could be very different. So d- there, David's requesting uh, for his child. But then in Ezra, I'm giving you a sword drill workout on, uh, do you know where all of your Old Testament books are, right? Um, Ezra 8. Ezra 8. And verse 21, so Ezra, so this is after the exile. This is after Israel starts returning to the land of their forefathers, and there's waves of these returns. I think Ezra is return number two. So he gathers a bunch of people with him from Babylon, and they're going to go back. Uh, But before they go back, and they're bringing a bunch of uh, stuff from the temple back, uh, so it's quite an ordeal. But look at Ezra 8.21. Ezra says this, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, somewhere in Babylon, uh, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we have to- had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty, right? But there you see that dynamic of fasting and praying, and it's a significant request, right? God's honor is at stake in this, right? Based on what Ezra has said to the king. And so they, uh, they fast and they pray, and God listens. The one praying expresses humility. You heard that language, right? Ezra saying, we humbled ourselves. How did they humble themselves? By fasting. The one praying expresses humility and dependence on God for all aspects of life and the answering of the specific prayer, right? So that's why fasting is appropriate there. And then finally, so fasting, you see people doing it during death and sorrow. And it's not like these categories are like, well, you do it for this, and then you do it for this. They overlap, and they intertwine with one another, don't they? 
But the idea is, uh, in any case, either of these cases, what are you doing? You're saying, uh, more than my food that I need for sustenance, I need God's word. I need God to sustain me. I'm dependent on him. So people do that with death and sorrow. They do it with repentance and forgiveness. They do it with prayer. They also do it for the authorization of ministry. The authorization of ministry. This brings up the 40-day fast of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Okay? All three of those, they're, they're patterned after one another. So you've got Moses, before he goes up to Mount Sinai, and even a couple times in relation to Mount Sinai, and in, in relation to the golden calf incident, you've got him fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah does something similar. He actually goes to Mount Sinai. He fasts for 40 days. And then you've got Jesus who fasts for 40 days. Um, Why? What's going on there? Well, there's this aspect where God in each of those cases is authorizing uh, those men in significant ways, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, uh, for their ministries. And really the idea is that this, this key servant is expressing dependence on the Lord and direction from him. They're looking to him, the, the Lord God, to sustain their lives. And, and you also see this dynamic in Acts. Uh, you can look in Acts after Saul is converted on the road to Damascus. He fasts for a couple days, and then he essentially begins his significant ministry. Even later, uh, the church at Antioch, they fast before sending out Paul and Barnabas, uh, before the significant stage of ministry. Even uh, Paul and his team, when they come back through churches after they founded them, they fast before appointing elders. All of that is connected to the idea of authorization for ministry. Each of these men humbled themselves, expressed dependence on God, and was given revelation and direction in God for ministry. But it's that back to that same fundamental principle. I am depriving myself of food, what I need on a regular basis to live, because God's word, God's direction, God's sustaining grace is what I need more than my food for life. Just a couple other things about fasting before we leave the Old Testament, giving you a full rounded picture. Uh, Turn to Isaiah 58. God's people, the Israelites, picked up on this idea of fasting, and you actually see fasting kind of increase as you walk through the scriptures. You see more and more examples of it. But here's the thing about fasting. It's not just the external action. We would guess that just from what Jesus is already saying in the Sermon on the Mount. But even in the Old Testament, uh, you see that same idea. So Isaiah uh, Isaiah 58, you've uh, got an example of God's people. The Israelites are crying out and saying, hey, why aren't, uh, why aren't you listening to us? We're fasting. Pick it up in verse 3, Isaiah 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to Yahweh? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to, set the oppre- to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him 
and not to hide yourselves from your own flesh. So it goes on, but what's the point? God hates hypocritical fasting. It's not the action. It's not like God's being manipulated by this external action. No, he wants fasting that corresponds with the heart. Here you see God's people uh, externally doing fasting, right? And yet they're oppressing those around them. They're not loving their neighbor as themselves. They're not really truly humbling themselves in that sense. And finally, one other thing we could say about fasting before we jump back to Matthew 6, like we said at the beginning, fasting, the opposite of fasting is feasting. And so fasting will ultimately cease in the final state of the world where abundant life is enjoyed in God's life-giving presence forever, right? The idea of fasting is humbling yourself and saying, more than my food, I need, I need God and his presence. I desire God's presence. I desire to be close with him. Just like Adam and Eve have abundance in the garden, the end of time we see there will be feasting and joy. You see this in Zechariah 7. We're not going to turn there, but Zechariah 7, 3, some people come and they say to ask Zechariah, hey, should we still fast? And we've got like four times a year now that we're fasting, and they're, they're mourning over the fall of Jerusalem, and they're mourning over these things. And essentially what God says is, I'm going to restore Jerusalem. I'm going to restore the temple. And in chapter 8, verse 19, he closes it off and says, the fasts that you're doing, uh, they're going to be turned into feasts. The fasts that you're doing, they're going to be turned into feasts in the end. Which comports even with what Jesus says in Matthew 9. Matthew 9. And we haven't gotten there in Matthew yet, so I'm just going to give you the sneak preview. But in Matthew 9.14, it's the same reality that we just talked about. Uh, the way Jesus answers a question about fasting. Matthew 9, 14 says this, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What's he talking about? Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom of God's people. It's a metaphor that's been used through all of Scripture. But what he's saying is, if the bridegroom is with you, if you're near God, then you don't, want to feed, you don't want to fast. You want to rejoice. It's a time of joy. It's a time of feasting. And Jesus is taken away now, and now is a time for his disciples to fast. But when he comes again, when there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, of the Messiah, at the end of time, there will be feasting and joy, and fasting will be no more. Because you're directly in God's life-giving presence. So that's a flyby understanding of the biblical significance of fasting. Just to remind you of the definition one more time. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food, the intake of which is regularly necessary to sustain human life in order to, why do you do it? In order to humble oneself and demonstrate one's dependence on God and his word as the ultimate foundation for one's life in all its dimensions. That we need to understand before jumping into Matthew 6, 16. 
So now we're back to Matthew 6, 16. And here's the main point that Jesus brings up. So his disciples already know what we just went over. They understand that that's why you fast. They got it. We didn't get it. We needed to spend some time there. So now we have it. But what's his main point in verses 16 through 18 in Matthew 6? Fast, looking for the Father's reward. Fast, looking for the Father's reward. Look at verse 16 in Matthew 6. And when you fast, so now it's assumed, just like it was assumed that you're going to give to the needy, and you're going to, it's assumed that you're going to pray, it's assumed that Jesus' disciples are going to fast. Now, we just read in Matthew 9 that while Jesus is there not fasting as much, or maybe not at all, but when he goes away, which he's not here right now, right, it's an appropriate time to fast. When you fast, and he says, don't do this. Don't look gloomy. Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, like the play actors. What does he mean, look gloomy? Well, continue on. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Could be that they're smearing, uh, remember we saw in some of the passages, there's, uh, when you're fast, there's sackcloth and ashes. Could be they're like smearing ashes on their face. Whatever it is, they're, they're disfiguring their face. They're changing their appearance to make people understand and see that visually, oh, that person must be fasting because of what they did with their face. Now, it's really funny. Uh, Jesus makes a pun. He, uh, when it says uh, they disfigure their faces, actually, literally, it's uh, cause them to be invisible. Cause them to be invisible. So they're causing their faces to be invisible. They're disfiguring it. They're hiding their appearance in order to be seen. Wait, so you're, 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 you're hiding yourself in order to be seen, right? Jesus is kind of, he's tongue-in-cheek mocking them, right? You guys are play actors, what are you doing, right? You're, you're smearing stuff on your face. You're making it look, you're, look yourself look miserable. Uh, why? You're trying to make yourself be invisible so that you might be seen by others. Again, what, it, it's, it's the motive. It's the motive that's the issue in all of these examples that we've seen. The motive is, in these guys' case, the play actor's case, you're presenting yourself as pious. You're presenting yourself, you're, here's the irony, you're presenting yourself in fasting as humbling yourself, as being dependent on God, but you're being self-reliant to disfigure yourself so that other people might be seen so that you might get their praise. It's just twisted. It's just twisted. And Jesus says it's the same principle that he said along, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And you remember that that's terminology that they used to use at the end of receipts to say, paid in full, paid in full. You're going to get some reward, but it's all you're going to get. You're not getting a penny from the Father. If that's what your motivation is, to seek the praise of people, you'll get it, but that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. But what does he tell his disciples to do? Verse 17, but when you fast, again, it's assumed that they're going to do it, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, this idea of anointing your head and washing your face, it's uh, obviously it's directly against what the play actors are doing. So rather than smearing stuff on your face, kind of disfiguring your face to make it look like you're sullen, you're gloomy, oh, I'm mourning, I'm mourning because I'm fasting. Uh, rather than that, he says, uh, go ahead and wash your face, uh, clean yourself up, and the idea of anointing your head with oil, uh, uh, I've never been to Palestine. I hear it's really hot. 
Uh, but what uh, the hot sun d- does, and if uh, you know this, uh, spend some time in the Dalles during the heat of summer. You remember this last summer, how hot it got, right? But you can get chapped skin. And so what people would do in that culture is they would put some oil on their skin to refresh their face, to refresh their skin. It was kind of a daily habit. It's not something out of the ordinary. It's just what Jesus is saying is take care of yourself just like you would on a day-to-day basis. In other words, nothing's out of the ordinary. Do what you would normally do. Do what you would normally do. Why? Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others. So you're intentionally going about your day as if nothing's out of the ordinary so that someone might not see you, so that someone might not see you, exactly opposite what the play actors are doing. But who do you want to be seen by? By your Father who is in the hidden place. And your Father who sees in the hidden place will reward you. Same principle as before, right? It's not about being seen by others. It's not about whether others know you're fasting or not. You're willing, the disciple is willing to go about daily life, not look any different, because the only person they care about in fasting is God. That's exactly what fasting is, humbling yourselves before God, humbling yourself before God, expressing dependence on Him. So the only person you care about if you're really fasting is God, whether God notices. Does God see you? Does God see your heart? He alone can see that you're not eating something, right, if you're keeping it all secret. Why? To seek the Father's reward. To seek the Father's reward. And again, what is this reward? It's open-ended. Unlike the, the, the play actors paid in full, there's just a promise here that the Father will reward you. Now, we know that some of that is ultimately in heaven. Uh, The way Jesus has been talking, the way he'll talk in the rest of the gospel is that some of that reward is in heaven. What is it? I don't know. He doesn't define it. He doesn't define it, but it's there. It's there. And again, what's the attitude here? What's the motivation? It's as a child with a father uh, doing uh, doing what, uh, what pleases the parent, what pleases the father, seeking reward from the parent. That's the idea. So you're fasting, looking for the Father's reward. So as we think about how to apply this, first, just remember, what's the overall principle? Are you doing your righteous habits? Giving, praying, fasting, attending, reading, preaching? Are you doing these things to be noticed by others or by God? That's what this whole section has been about. Do you, look, you care more about what other people think of you, or do you care about God seeing you? And are you seeking the Father's reward as a son or daughter? He is a good and generous Father who gives generously to His children. And so we apply that to fasting as well. And here's the thing. I wanted to spend a lot of time on fasting because there is so much misconception in our, our, in our churches and in, in the U.S. about it. And so this is another point of application, I would say. Jesus expects his disciples to be fasting. Not just, okay, I'm going to do this action because he tells me to, but now we understand why. Why would you fast? 
We fast because for all those reasons we talked about, we're mourning, or we're repenting, or we're praying, or we're thinking about some new direction of ministry or life, or whatever, but the point is you're humbling yourself, and you're seeking to show dependence on the Lord. More than my food, more than my daily bread, I need God and His Word. I want to be near His presence, especially as Jesus is in heaven now at the right hand of the Father, He's not here. The bridegroom's not here. We mourn. We want to be with Jesus. And so it's appropriate to fast. And so use it. I would encourage you, incorporate the discipline of fasting food, talking about food here, more in your life. I would encourage you this next week, pick a day, pick a day, set it aside, and fast. And you see, a lot of the things that we do in Scripture, the disciplines of Scripture, you get better at them by doing them. And you're like, I don't know how I would do that. I don't know if I'm going to be any good at it. That's not the point, right? Do it in the parameters that God has designed for it and look to Him for reward. Trust Him. It doesn't even have to be about anything specific necessarily because what's the core? Expressing humility and dependence on God that everything I have in life, I need I need God. He is the source of my life. Everything that proceeds from his mouth, that's what I need. I need him. I need his presence. I need his word. And whether fasting or not, you still need the humility, right? Fasting is about humility. Fasting is about dependence. So whether you're fasting or not, and I would encourage you, incorporate that discipline. Do it uh, when you're mourning, when you're mourning over sin, when you're requesting, when you have directions. But whether you're fasting or not, we desire the same level of humility that our whole entire lives would be dependent on God and everything that comes from his mouth. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth. God. So let's take care to fast, looking for reward from the Father and not from people. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we need your help. We're not good at fasting. I'm not, Lord, but we want to do it, not just because it's cool or because it, even just because you said it, that would be enough, oh Lord, but because we want to have the attitude of humility and dependence that's supposed to go along with it. Grow us into being a humble people. Grow us into being a dependent people that we would recognize that we need you and we need to hear from you more than even our daily bread. Lord, make us that people, we would ask. Pray that you would receive all the honor and glory. Pray these things in your name. Amen.